thought-leading insights on data and analytics in the healthcare space. This is Healthcare Analytics Decoded, a podcast by Quantros. Hello and welcome to this episode of Healthcare Analytics Decoded, a Quantros podcast. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the show. Today, we're excited to welcome Andrew Johnson, Quantros' Director of Data Science on the program. Andrew's healthcare data science work has been published or quoted widely in dozens of scientific journals, papers, and presentations. Prior to joining Quantros, Andrew led HCA Healthcare's National Group Data Science Team, where he directed the design and construction of clinical and operational predictive models, and also led a team to win first place in AHRQ's 2019 Bringing Predictive Analytics to Healthcare Challenge. In addition to his industry experience in healthcare data science, he's held faculty positions in public health administration at the University of Kentucky and currently holds a faculty appointment in healthcare informatics at Medical University of South Carolina. So, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us for this uh, this episode of the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting your, your insights and expertise um, on the show today. And leading our conversation is Lauren Hickey of Quantros. Lauren, thank you so much for being here to host and uh, navigate us through these topics today. Good to be here. Excellent, excellent. Well, I- I'm excited to have both of you. Lauren, you're guiding this thing, so let me turn things over to you. Take it away. All right. So, Andrew, I think most people in healthcare are aware that we're sort of shifting from a fee-for-service model to a value-based model. So from a data analytics perspective, how do you think that affects the indicators that hospitals should be focusing on and monitoring? Mm. So so every, every healthcare organization should have what I call a, a set of vital signs that they track in terms of uh, metrics and data. Uh, for everyone, those should flow down from their mission statement. But as you say, with, with value-based care, uh, growing, uh, what we're going to see is that there are a few new things that need to be added to these measure portfolios. I would put these uh, new additions into three big categories. Uh, the first would be, are your providers uh, compliant with whatever care practice models or evidence-based best practices that you've chosen to do? Uh, are any of the outcome measures associated with, let's say, value-based uh, contracts, are those being tracked? And the third is patient experience metrics. Those are the three broad classes of things that I think will need to be added to the the measure portfolio for monitoring. Interesting. So for patient experience, I know there's sort of this debate about using patient satisfaction surveys and self-reported data. So if someone's trying to avoid survey data and self-reported data and things like that, what can they look at instead to capture some things like patient experience? Uh, you bring up an interesting point, which is, is really around the, the measurement validity of these patient experience surveys. Mm-hmm. I would not say don't use them. I would say use them as part of a multi-pronged uh, measurement philosophy, a, a balanced scorecard, if you will. Mm-hmm. So potentially you're including it, but it doesn't have as heavy as a weight as something that you can objectively quantify, like a mortality rate or rates of Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I draw parallels to, to my academic experience where we have uh, student evaluations, right? And mm-hmm. they, are, they are simultaneously critical and biased, <laughs> you know, because the, the loudest voices are always those who had the best and the worst experience. Sure. But that doesn't mean we should, you know, stop collecting either of them. Okay. And so then 
you know, how do you think hospitals should then be leveraging this data for imp- for performance improvement plans or rooting their mm. improvement strategies in in the data? Well, it, it all flows from the very top. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if you go back to the historical development of uh, officer positions in healthcare organizations, one thing you'll tend to see is the CIO, the chief information officer, technically was right under the chief financial officer. And that, that has its, uh, its grounding in the fact that most of the early things that they wanted to track were financial information. So it makes sense to put your CIO under there. Uh, and, you know, as, as the decades have gone by, we've seen the CIO pop out uh, as a peer of the CFO. And what you're seeing now similarly is the, the creation of either a chief data officer or a chief analytics officer, which used to be, uh, you know, under, under its own little branch, now uh, joining that, that, peer, that peer relationship at the, the table of officers. Uh, I think that is the, that's step one. You always have to start with an organization at the highest level saying, it is important to us to not only collect data, not only to, uh, to clean, organize, and display it, but to actually do something with it that changes how we do things, right? You have to have the, you have to have the full loop uh, to really get any kind of transformational change in an organization. So to start, you always start with a motivated leadership that is willing to put their time and organizational resources in building an analytics department. Got it. Um, and then, so for an, an organization who has really made, you know, performance improvement a priority and they've really, you know, are dedicating time and resources to it, do you have any advice about choosing where to start? Where to start? Because mm. healthcare, you know, it's, it's multifaceted. There's a lot of moving pieces. It's complicated, obviously. And so... Yes. At, at any moment in time, you know, you can have a multitude of different areas that are, you know, sort of calling for your attention. So it can be difficult mm-hmm. to choose, like, what's our number one priority? What do we focus on first? Yeah. So I, I would I would chop that strategy up into two parts. The first mm-hmm. is, is, let's call it the greatest hits of healthcare data science. Uh, and, and these are, going back to your first question, those those broad-based portfolio metrics that you need to have. Like, you need to know what your um, readmission looks like on a rolling uh, scale. You need to know what your length of stay is looking like. Um, now, once you get past those, those greatest hits, those, those vital signs of a healthcare organization, then it becomes a question of, well, how am I doing broadly, systemically? Are there pockets of practice in my uh, provider organization? Uh, where some people are doing things great and other people are not doing so well. And I think that's actually one of the, the benefits of the, the Quantros methodology, which it takes that uh, broad-based scan and does precisely that. It says you're doing good at these things, uh, you could do better on these things. And it doesn't just tell you in a a, a absolute sense, like, like this is your rate, but it also tells you what your rate would be compared to your peers, which you can arbitrarily right. define, and and nationally, like like where do I stack up in the the biggest field, the biggest game? Got it. So we're we're talking about data and how important it is to to look at and analyze it and pay attention to it. So what is what do you think is sort of the value in having 
a third party, you know, data analytics software, quality software, and not just using a hospital's own EMR? Why, why is it sort of a, a second data mm. analytic platform needed? So, so I've worked in the space of, I'd call it homegrown analytics and data science, where a hospital system went and said, we're going to do all of this ourselves, lock, stock, and barrel. Uh, and it is simultaneously as valuable as it is tough to pull off. Uh, and if you don't have the, the proper economy of scale, uh, you know, it's, it's really hard to, to spin up an analytics team that, that can get things you know, built uh, both in valid and quick manners. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of the reason why it's so hard to get data out of EMRs is because EMRs were never, uh, never designed, initially at least, to pull data out of them for an analytics perspective. You know, EMRs' uh, reasons for being initially were, let's capture and retrieve whatever health information uh, we need about our patients, let's facilitate our billing operations, uh, and to a lesser extent, let, let's just have a, a legal record of care that we've provided to the patient. And, and none of those um, are, you know, strictly analytics focused. What, what you're seeing over the past decade, though, are uh, EMR manufacturers realizing that they need, they need to surface uh, some of the, the undercurrents that are being collected in their data. And that could be anything from structured to uh, non-structured data, text, natural language processing like that. So because an EMR is really, you know, its primary function is for, is for billing purposes, it might not have some of those really crucial things to get at true, you know, uh, mm-hmm. insights and in data like risk adjustment, um, indicators of statistical significance, peer review, things like that. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, from the provider perspective, you, you're, you're in this interesting spot where you have incredibly rich data that is, you know, if you can parse it and make sense of it, but you only have data that your organization has. You, you don't have right. anything that, you know, uh, anything that, uh, you know, providers that the patients might go to after they're discharged uh, unless you, you know, you own those uh, provider uh, practice groups. Um, and so, so you have great data on just a small facet of their healthcare experience, right? So how do you get comparatives? And I think that's right. where, where Quantros comes in and says, well, we have, you know, nationally representative giant data sets that we can do risk adjustment. So, so it's not just that, um, you know, I would say uh, sort of homegrown provider data science and, and analytics systems, um, shouldn't be done, but rather that there's an element that they necessarily can't do unless they're willing to wade into the the big data space of claims data. Sure. So let's do a little bit of a deeper dive into some of those things that really make, you know, data analytics more valuable, like risk adjustment and peer review. Mm. So could you tell us a little bit about why risk adjustment is so important when you're analyzing hospital and physician performance? Certainly. So the, the general idea in at least inferential statistics, if not the practice of statistics as a whole, is that the most interesting questions are actually comparisons. Uh, they are, um, you know, let, let's compare uh, the efficacy of treatment A to treatment B, right? So to do those comparisons, you, you have to start from uh, uh, an even starting point uh, in terms of your measurements. But unfortunately, patients are never 
exchangeable in that sense, right? There, there is no such right. thing as a, a showroom new patient, right? Mm-hmm. Even newborns have their own set of uh, you know, peculiar uh, health risks, social determinants, genetic profiles. Uh, so, so every patient is different. Therefore, every uh, collection of patients uh, is different. And so what we have to do, if we want to compare variation that's coming from provider sources, that things like quality and efficiency, then we have to control for variation that's coming from other places. Uh, and those would be largely the, the, the patient's physiological status. So you don't end up telling a hospital, or you know a hospital sees that they, a, a patient had a negative outcome, maybe they had to be readmitted. And then you, know, you do all this root cause analysis, you try to dive down to you know what happened here, and then the answer is, well, you know, if your patient wasn't so old, they yeah. wouldn't have been readmitted. If this patient, you know, didn't have diabetes as a comorbidity, then they would have been fine. Well, that's not something that the hospital can act on. Exactly. Uh, I, uh, a good analog to this would be uh, your local mechanic, right? So mm-hmm. your local mechanic sees sick cars, uh, and and we can rate their quality pretty pretty well, which is, does the problem exist after I've left <laughs> versus, you know, the state I brought it into them in? So, so how might a, a mechanic have low quality? Well, it could be because maybe you didn't change your oil for the, the first 50,000 miles, right? And the fact that they can't uh, get your car back into shape really had nothing to do with their skills. You know, it's part of either the, 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 the patient-focused behaviors that are that are flowing into the practice setting, or you know, we need to realize that that healthcare is this giant, uh, complicated superstructure where people seek care from multiple providers, right? So, mm-hmm. so we need to, in some way, adjust for all those collective experiences uh, and exposures and risk and protective factors that a patient encounters when we do our risk adjustment. That's like, that's like the unified grand theory of controlling for everything. Now, unfortunately, we can't always power that with the data. Uh, and that is the, the fundamental balance involved in statistical risk modeling, which is how do we make models that are simultaneously valid in, in terms of their construct validity? That is, the things we're putting in them are known to be impactful for measurement and simultaneously uh, not overbuilding them, not overtraining them to the data, um, not letting spurious findings in just because we have data on particular covariates. That's, that's, the, that's the art of data science and risk modeling, we might say. Sure. And so potentially that sort of balance is where you know, peer review comes in and, ha- and why that's so valuable when you're constructing a data model. Certainly, yeah. And, and peer review for models uh, is lagging behind for a number of reasons from peer review for scientific practice generally, right? It has long been recognized that uh, if you want someone to believe your scientific findings, you have to show what they did, excuse me, you have to show what you did uh, to arrive at those findings. Ideally, it'd be nice to replicate, have others replicate those findings themselves. And the problem with a lot of risk modeling when it comes to peer review is nobody wants to show their secret sauce, right? Their, their secret recipe uh, for risk adjustment. It's been my experience, though, 
that the recipe is not the part that, that you really need to protect. The recipe is actually something you want to show because uh, in, in all my years of practice of data science, I have found that the biggest problems I've encountered in terms of the deployment of predictive models, uh, you name it, risk adjustment, the biggest problem is never these technical challenges. All the textbooks you know, are, are overflowing with methods on how to, how to handle different technical problems. They're always people problems. And almost always, those people problems come in the form of getting someone to believe that what you are doing uh, in a scientific modeling manner is sufficiently correct that they will believe it and, and change their practice as a result of it. And the only way you can really get there uh, is to show somebody what's actually in your model. Otherwise, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, they just won't believe a black box. Right. Yeah, I have heard sort of... Um from, from physicians, you know, when I've like talked to them about this idea of like rating and ranking um, quality and performance, the response I get most often is like, well, but my patients are sicker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, like yeah. Um, they, they sort of dismiss the idea, at least on the surface outright, that it's even really possible to like rate and rank because well my patient my patients are sicker that's why i didn't do as well you, you know I, I don't know if i should say it but I, i'll go ahead uh we have some some in-house jokes at my the last place i worked uh, and one of the jokes was we call it the the stages of data grief so so you've heard of like the stages of grief you know like mm -hmm. denial anger well whenever we would present to somebody results they weren't expecting for whatever reason they would go through their own series of stages of grief about the data and it always starts with first they doubt the data the veracity mm -hmm. of the data itself and then they doubt uh, the way that you've assembled the data, that is your, your, your methodological approach. Like, oh, you should have tried, you know, uh, algorithm X instead of algorithm Y. And then once they get past that, um, the, the last barrier is, that, okay, they've, they've come to accept the data. They've come to accept your algorithmic approach um, and that they can uh, sort of stop at that last stage by throwing up their hands and, and saying, well... I personally can't do anything about this problem. I recognize it's a problem, but I'm part of a bigger system. Um, so uh, I'll see you later. <laughs> and, and I call that the the stages of data grief. <laughs> so that potentially sort of speaks to the value in being transparent about your methodology because otherwise maybe you have people stuck in that in that first stage of Yeah, of yeah. You'll never progress. If yeah, and you never move on from that. Yeah. So Quantrus has some exciting things that are changing and coming out later this year. Some changes to the product, some changes to the data model. So for our listeners, I was hoping you'd be able to sort of talk about the strengths of the current model that's mm. you know, in use right now. And then what are some new things that are coming later this year and what are they going to bring to the table um, and how are they really going to, you know, take us all a step forward? The thing that makes the existing model and algorithmic approach uh, valuable is that it has already proven itself for at least a decade or two as a valid right. scoring measure, right? So it's got, it's got very strong 
face validity, uh, content validity, the things that are in it make sense from a scientific perspective. And it's got some predictive validity. People have been using this measure uh, to make change in their organizations uh, you know, for, for many years. So we know it works. So I am not coming in to, to overhaul anything, but rather to incrementally uh, incorporate modern statistical practices uh, you know, that have, that have uh, come up in the last decade or so. Um, so one of these, I think, the thing I'm most excited about is the connection of inpatient and outpatient data together. So, mm -hmm. you know, I spoke, I spoke previously about how, uh, you know, a patient can see multiple providers in multiple settings at multiple points in time, but we still need to, to conceptualize their experience, um, as these, these longitudinal arcs, these episodic arcs that, that encapsulate multiple encounters uh, provided by multiple providers in multiple places. And we're finally getting there, uh, that, that integration of inpatient and outpatient data, uh, to, to be able to look at these longitudinal arcs of care and mm -hmm. to say, uh, we're really breaking beyond the admit to discharge bounds of inpatient data. And we can say, uh, physician, or provider, you are part of this larger system, and this larger system is generating this set of results. And so now you can do something with things that were previously outside of your visibility. If if we were if you were an inpatient provider and you only had you know your own inpatient data, so that's what I'm most excited about uh, with the the new model that's coming into production. Hopefully by the end of the year. Sure, and so. This idea of, you know, inpatient versus outpatient and sort of the value of being able to look across care settings. So this also allows you to sort of or should allow you to compare outcomes between settings, correct? So, you know, maybe yes. our knee replacements in the outpatient setting cost less than those in the inpatient setting, but our patients are having you know, worse outcomes, they're having to have more follow-ups, they're having higher rates of complications. So is it actually resulting in being less expensive? Or once you pull in all of the required follow-up care and the cost of these poor outcomes, you know, potentially outpatient is actually ending up costing, costing more, things like that. That, that is absolutely true. There are a multitude of ways that the, the application can slice the data, particularly along the lines that, that you just identified. You can slice by setting type, provider, uh, episode type. Um, you, can, you can just look at surgical episodes. You can look at uh, the larger uh, medical episode bundle. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it, it's really very flexible, and it allows you to make those those uh, comparisons, which, you know, as I said, comparisons are the, the, the interesting part of statistics. And this sort of, you talked about like an episodic arc of it, you know, a patient's entire um, healthcare journey. Mm -hmm. So that also pulls in really every physician or surgeon or hospitalist, every healthcare worker, for the most part, that really touched that patient throughout that course of care, whether that, mm -hmm. you know, is over a single inpatient visit or, you know, a month or, or six months. That's correct. And it is a shift in how we look at the attribution of quality because we mm -hmm. are combining together 
uh, multiple encounters into this larger episodic structure, well, that means you have, let's say you have multiple inpatient encounters, well, that means you have multiple attendings. Uh, you may have some consultings in there. You may have a, a, a surgeon doing a procedure or multiples of them. Uh, you, you have a much bigger set of people to which you could attribute some outcome. Mm-hmm. And this is in line with uh, the general philosophy behind value-based care, which is let's get away from sort of the, the blame game of you caused this, therefore we're going to ding you. And, and let's say we are all sort of collectively responsible for the, the broad-based outcomes that our patient population experiences. That, that in a nutshell, is value-based care. Uh, and it requires a, a shift in thinking about attribution. We're going away from this direct causality interpretation of attribution and toward one that's more associative, which says uh, you were a part of this system that generated these results. Therefore, you have uh, some some attribution uh, grounded in that system. Sure. So to sort of go back to my earlier example of a knee replacement, you know, a patient sees their doctor, the doctor determines that they need a knee replacement and refers them to a specific surgeon, they -hmm. have the surgery, something goes awry, um, and they, you know, have complications afterwards. Whereas previously, it's really potentially only the surgeon who's being held responsible for that complication. Now it's sort of a broader view of that original physician, you know, you referred them to this surgeon. So you're, you're going to share in the responsibility of this outcome. That's right. You, you could be an incredibly high-quality provider, but uh, have the unfortunate behavior of referring to some real lemons, <laughs> or vice versa. You know, you, right. you may just be getting lucky uh, because you've, you know, the, the the people to whom you are transitioning the provision of your patient's care uh, may be exceptional. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, besides, you know, outpatient is data is hopefully coming at the end of this year. So. Beyond that, um, what do you think is sort of like the next thing that should be incorporated, the next advancement in, in performance analytics? Mm. The, the next element on our roadmap is social determinants of data. Uh, this has been something that, that has really grown over the past five or ten years in terms of recognition of social determinants' impact on patients' mm-hmm. health status and health outcomes. Uh, but unfortunately, that's not typically something that appears in either uh, provider data, or, or or surely claims data, right? So right. a lot of a lot of that data has to come from what I I would call ecological sources. Um, that that is, you know, this patient lives in this community. This community has these characteristics. Therefore, there is this ecological link uh, to the patient's community factors to the outcomes associated with healthcare provision. Uh, and I think that that's the uh, sort of the, the next frontier for Quantros modeling is to incorporate those social determinants of health. So I'm really excited about that. Yeah. So that would be something like um, maybe looking at like zip code and then mm-hmm. sort of making this determination of, you know, this zip code has a lower average household income. And so potentially patients from this area have less disposable income. Maybe they're mm-hmm. not picking up their prescriptions. And so they have a higher rate of readmission because exactly. they're, they're not able to follow the doctor's follow-up and, exactly. follow-up care and discharge orders. 
And that could even include like the walkability of a neighborhood, you know, like, like right. we know that, that one of the biggest success factors for uh, knee and hip replacements is getting back to being active. But what if you don't even have any sidewalks uh, near you that you could even walk on safely? You know, that's, yeah. that, that contributes to, you know, that healthcare outcome. And that's something that uh, you really wouldn't be able to address any other way. There are generally two ways to get social determinants of data, uh, social determinant data uh, for this this kind of purpose. The the first way is to get it directly specific to the patient, right? And that's largely undoable, right? Uh, I've <laughs> believe it or not, I've actually seen um, not providers but some other groups, some other intermediaries in the healthcare space. Uh, collect some really interesting, if not questionable, data on their patients. Everything from their their credit records to their criminal histories, and try to use that as social determinants data. Um, mm-hmm. That that creeps me out a little bit. Uh, I'm sure there's a signal <laughs> there, but I don't know if I'd want to use it. Right. But uh, with that said, that is that's how hard it is to get individual level data. Um, yeah. Now we we are seeing the, the tide turning a little bit in the use of. Uh, a variety of Z codes uh, in in our claims data, but th- that's not fully permeated uh, coding practice yet. And the, the the second way to get data is through this ecological link, which is which is much easier. Mm-hmm. Um, and so finally, what gets you excited about working as a data analytics leader? What's exciting about your role today? It's really nice to come into a group that is already succeeding. And, and help them sort of a- extract more performance out of their data. Um, it, it's, you, you know, it, it's a lot of work to, to build things from scratch. And so to, to join Quantros at a time where, uh, you know, the, the models you already have uh, work really well, let's make the following uh, sort of incremental leaps uh, is a really exciting place for me to be. Awesome. Well, I think those are all my questions for today. Thank you so much for your time, Andrew. I really appreciate taking the time to talk to me today. Glad to. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you guys so much for uh, for that really, really uh, insightful and educational and engaging conversation, Andrew and Lauren. Uh, we appreciate it very much. And thank you, everyone out there for listening to this episode of Healthcare Analytics Decoded, a podcast from Quantrust. Of course, make sure you're subscribed on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to stay up to date with the latest in healthcare analytics from Quantros. And of course, we'll be back soon with more episodes of the podcast. But until then, for Andrew Johnson and Lauren Hickey, I'm Tyler Kern, and we'll talk again soon.